Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. Was 20 years in Afghanistan enough, or did the dangers brewing there justify the United States staying even longer? Let's get to the bottom line. It was a war that spanned four U.S. presidents, two Democrats and two Republicans, and became the classic definition of a forever war. Every year, those in power would say the goals in Afghanistan are achievable, that the enemy was being rolled back, and that U.S. forces should stay. At one point, under former President Barack Obama, there were over 100,000 deployed U.S. troops, not counting those of American allies. Former President Donald Trump was obsessed about ending this war and reached a deal with the Taliban last year to do so. Finally, the last president to inherit the war, Joe Biden, pulled out, only to watch in shock and awe as the Taliban retook their country within days. The government and army that Washington had propped up for decades disappeared into thin air. And Afghan President Ashraf Ghani fled to the United Arab Emirates in a helicopter reportedly stuffed with cash. About 100,000 people have fled, and deadly attacks have taken place right at the entrance of the Kabul airport. America's goals in the country wavered from preventing a haven for terrorism to nation-building and democracy promotion. Which one was it? Who knows? Maybe the lack of purpose was what Biden was trying to end. So was it the right decision? My guest today says absolutely not. He is John Bolton, national security advisor to former President Donald Trump and former ambassador to the United Nations for the president who actually launched the war on Afghanistan 20 years ago, George W. Bush. And he's the author of The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. Ambassador Bolton, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. As we get started, I want to play a clip from President Joe Biden of uh, what he said about Afghanistan in April. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it, we'll do it responsibly, deliberately and safely. And we will do it in full coordination with our allies and partners who now have more forces in Afghanistan than we do. And then this from his Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, in June. Whatever happens in Afghanistan, if there is a significant deterioration uh, in security, um, that could well happen. We've discussed this uh, before. Um, I don't think it's going to be something that happens from a Friday to a Monday. Uh, so I wouldn't um, necessarily equate the departure of our forces uh, in July, August, or by early September with some kind of immediate uh, deterioration uh, in, the, uh, in the situation. So, Ambassador, I don't know if it was Friday to Monday, but it was pretty darn fast what we saw the deterioration in Kabul and around uh, the entire nation of Afghanistan. From your perspective, knowing this war intimately from many different positions, what happened? Well, I think there are two different decisions at play here. The first uh, decision, obviously, being uh, to withdraw American uh, military forces and, and therefore inevitably NATO military forces, uh, a decision uh, fully shared both by Donald Trump uh, uh, and by Joe Biden. Uh, the second was the question of the execution of the decision, uh, which is essentially uh, Biden's responsibility. But I think that the, the fact of uh, really three presidents in a row who were very dubious about uh, the U.S. mission, didn't have a clear definition of what the objectives were, uh, and certainly beginning with Trump openly talking about withdrawing American forces uh, all had a catastrophic effect over time on the uh, morale of the Afghan National Army and, and the Afghan police. Uh, and so when the 
decision uh, to withdraw finally was announced by Biden, uh, I think the military concluded that uh, that they were going to be left behind uh, and that uh, they had lost all hope by that time. You know, the U.S. presence was small uh, but vital. And uh, like the keystone of an arch, uh, when you take that stone away, the entire arch can fall and all you have is a big pile of stones. The pile of stones may look impressive, but if you don't have the keystone, it doesn't hold together. What is the responsible um, position in, in this case in the sense that I, I thought about this view and I was very uh, taken with the article that you wrote in the Washington Post recently arguing that our equities strategically are not just about what's happening in the airport, not what's happening with uh, Afghans being left behind. They involve Pakistan. They involve the radicalization of leadership there. They involve, you know, the potential that nuclear weapons could fall into um, the hands of those that have uh, been at least party to the takeover in Afghanistan, that there are other dimensions to this. How do you weigh the subject of nuclear vulnerabilities versus, say, you know, China and Russia, you know, being thrilled with America tied down and spending a trillion dollars in Afghanistan? Where do you balance those two? Well, you know, in the Trump administration, we didn't have big strategic discussions. That's that's one of the problem. And I think uh, it's also been part of the problem in the American political debate. Uh, my own view is that uh, when the United States uh, withdraws, uh, we leave a big hole in Central Asia. And that vacuum is going to be filled by somebody, China, Russia, uh, Iran, Pakistan, India, a lot of players. Uh, and it's not going to be to our advantage. Uh, and I think that's one of the one of the key things that was missing from the overall debate. I would say, uh, to exaggerate for effect a little bit here, uh, both Trump and Biden believed that looking at this big pile of pickup sticks, which uh, Afghanistan represents, is they could reach in and pull out the American stick and everything else would remain the same. That's fundamentally wrong. And I think, unfortunately, we're beginning to see that now. Uh, you can't ignore the fact that for 20 years, our position has affected other people's perceptions and policies, including our NATO allies, who, uh, as Biden pointed out, had more military in Afghanistan than we did at the end. And when you when you take that foundation out, uh, it shakes a lot of people's confidence in the United States, and it gives our adversaries a lot of opportunities. Um, Ambassador, I'm sure you're read into things that I am not uh, when it comes to classified information. But one of the areas I've been interested in is with the command and control and the control by Pakistan's government authorities of their nuclear weapons. Do you have worries that those controls inside Pakistan are coming in undone or could be hijacked by nefarious uh, players inside Pakistan. I'm just interested in whether you can share your level of DEFCON concern. Well, I, I can certainly say this. You know, you can deliver a nuclear warhead on a jeep. Uh, you can put it in the hold of a tramp steamer and sail it into a harbor. So the physical separation from an F-16 or, or even a, uh, a ballistic missile uh, doesn't really tell you a lot. I, I think within... Pakistan itself. And this is something we became concerned about right after 9-11. I, I, I went with Secretary of State Powell to his, uh, on his first visit to Pakistan after 9-11. And my job at the time involved getting a better sense of what uh, Pakistan's control over that nuclear arsenal was. I, I would say this. I'm not 
that worried about one or two weapons slipping away, slipping into the hands of terrorists. I worry about it, but I think the Pakistanis understand how uh, much it's in their interest that they not lose control that way. What I'm more worried about is the prospect that the entire government of Pakistan falls into the hands of radicals, Pakistani Taliban or other equivalents. Uh, the military is already filled with radicals in inner services intelligence. Uh, and now with Taliban in control of Afghanistan right next door, it's far from hypothetical. So in that case, you would have the entire arsenal in the hands of uh, terrorists or, or sponsors of terrorists. And, you know, by public estimates, that could be as high as 150 nuclear weapons, which is a pretty frightening prospect. Let me ask you about the Taliban. Now, you have uh, a colleague, former colleague, Zal Khalilzad, who has been uh, the presidential envoy for both President uh, Trump and President Biden dealing with the Taliban. And, you know, I remember going back that it's always been a question of whether the Taliban were al-Qaeda. If you read H.R. McMaster's book, he says they're indistinguishable from each other. Uh, General David Petraeus has said in the past, indistinguishable from each other. But now the question is, is the Taliban an entity that 20 years after uh, our invasion, after 9-11, and they're hosting al-Qaeda, do you believe that Taliban is a, um, uh, it, it, that potentially they are an entity that can govern Afghanistan in a way that we can negotiate or deal with them? Well, I don't, I don't think that uh, that's really possible. Taliban itself, of course, is, is highly fragmented. There are different factions. There are leadership struggles. It's certainly uh, not a monolith. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you talk about the Taliban or al-Qaeda, let's not forget ISIS, which is also present, uh, as, as we can see, in the terrorist attack on the airport. Um, it, it's not like these are separate entities that, you know, have membership cards and secret handshakes and you can tell mm. one from the other. It's like the, the only analogy that uh, even comes close and it's not very good is Europe after World War One, with all the disorganization that led led to uh, the, the totalitarian takeovers in Germany and uh, and Italy. You know, one day somebody could be a fascist, the next day they could be an anarchist, the day after that they could be a communist. And we look back and say, how could that be? Because for many of these people, it wasn't the particular ideology, it was the, the extremism itself. So uh, that really fits with Taliban, al-Qaeda, and ISIS. Uh, I think it's uh, they're inherently trustworthy. We just saw Yesterday, a Taliban spokesman say, you know, Osama bin Laden didn't really have anything to do with 9-11. Uh, and that's why I felt it was a fundamentally flawed strategy to negotiate with Taliban to begin with. I just don't think their words worth the paper it's printed on. You know, Ambassador, you know, there's a there's a fascinating historical lesson. You know, and I always go back to Japan and say, you know, what would John Foster Dulles have done? And when, you know, John Foster Dulles was worried about, after World War II, about Japan going back into a China, you know, centric orbit. And he said the way not to have that happen is to wedge the Japan economy deeply into the U.S. economy, even on a preferential basis. Now, at the height of our involvement in Afghanistan, we were spending $120 billion a year with a nation whose GDP was about $14 billion. Did we do this wrong? Did we, should we have wedged Afghanistan and its society and its economy deeply into the U.S. economy to create a different vector? Because when I look at that, a trillion dollars spent, those of, I mean, I, I look at you, those of you who have supported what we were doing, 
Shouldn't we have gotten more for that for that for that level of investment? Well, the, the short answer is yes, we should have. But the but the longer answer, and I think it's implicit in your question, is we shouldn't have invested that amount to begin with. Mm. Uh, the, 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 the nation building paradigm, uh, and it's part of the theory of counterinsurgency warfare, and there's a long history to it, in, in my view, is fundamentally flawed. I, I just don't think, and I, I speak as a you know, as an alumnus of the U.S. Agency for International Development. So I've, I've been in those uh, trenches. There's there's a, a role for American foreign aid, foreign ec economic assistance. It can be very important. But people are constantly analogizing to the post-World War II Marshall Plan. It's a, it's a very bad analogy. Uh, I think that we uh, should have understood Afghanistan had not had centralized government in many centuries, and we weren't going to create it for them. Uh, and the Taliban uh, runs on an ideology, a, a, a theological ideology, an extremist ideology uh, that's not based on uh, complaints about the living standards. It's based on something way, way different from that. So that affecting the living standards in Afghanistan doesn't necessarily affect the ideology. In Pakistan, for example, uh, you can have uh, some of the some of the poorest areas of Pakistan are some of the most extreme and the urban areas where there's a higher standard of living are much more quote unquote uh, modern and western uh, so i think i think there were a lot of uh, uh, mistakes made i think that contributed heavily to running up the bill uh, that we've paid much of which has now been wasted but i think it also goes to the question of uh, what uh, our objective was after uh, the victory in 2001 after Taliban and had been defeated and al-Qaeda had basically been pushed out of the country. And, and I think that objective should have been limited. And it was originally. It was to keep Taliban and al-Qaeda from coming back and uh, permitting the conditions that established uh, uh, the possibility for another attack on the United States. That was a kind of minimalistic objective. But I think we have achieved it for 20 years. We've spent a lot more than we needed to to do it. But there's no reason it couldn't have been continued at a relatively low cost and certainly a, a very low human cost, which is the most important thing. Yeah, I'm reminded that, in a way, you were the father of the Proliferation Security Initiative. I'll tell our, our um, audience that this was an initiative that was launched during the Bush administration to look at new nuclear weapons and materials and controls and try to bring them you know, under you know, broader agreements and controls to deal with them. And I guess, in, again, to go back to your Washington Post piece, you said you wondered whether uh, President Biden would have the backbone to tell China that it has responsibility, that it could be culpable, you know, in what happens and evolves in Pakistan's, you know, nuclear program, what could happen if something got, you know, became wayward. And I'm just interested, again, to go back to look at this. Is, is China a potential collaborator with us or are they a foe when it comes to dealing with Afghanistan and what may happen there? Well, I think we're going to find them on the opposite side of uh, the future of both Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan. Uh, look, China poses an existential threat to the West uh, in its current configuration under its current government. Uh, what they will do uh, looking at our withdrawal from Afghanistan is try and staunch any potential terrorist support for the Uyghurs uh, inside China. Uh, but they'll also try and uh, use it as a uh, kind of a rear area for Pakistan, where, uh, as you note, they, they have helped the nuclear and ballistic missile programs. 
They've invested an awful lot of uh, financial resources as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And what they're really looking for, and we'll get uh, in the near future, are uh, oil and gas terminals in Pakistan where uh, raw materials from the Middle East can be uh, put into those uh, pipelines, go directly to China overland from Pakistan into China, and not have to sail all the way from the Persian Gulf through the South China Sea. Uh, that's a huge security matter for China. Uh, and they, they want that domination. And they also, by uh, extending their influence in Pakistan even further, uh, want to encircle India almost entirely from the north. Let's, let's not forget we've got these two most populous nations on Earth, both nuclear-equipped. Uh, who have not been on the friendliest of terms for a long time. Well, I think this has raised a really interesting question. I want to go back to, you know, to, to things I've, I've read that you've written is that we need to look at the world as it is, not the world as we wish it were. Uh, and I want to read a, a, a clip from Taliban spokesman uh, Zabihullah Mujahid. And he says, I'd like to assure our neighbors, regional countries, we're not going to allow our territory to be used against anybody, any country in the world. So the whole global community should be assured that we are committed to these pledges, that you will not be harmed in any way from our soil. So again, to go back to the world as it is at this moment, and given your concerns about nuclear weapons, given what we've seen unfold, and given what your previous boss kind of laid the railroad track to do, what are our real options at this moment? Well, I think on Afghanistan itself, they're, they're very limited. Uh, we see signs that the Tajik ethnic minority uh, in the Panjshir Valley is going to resist. This is the territory of the legendary Ahmad Shah Massoud, who stood off the Soviet Union for mm. 10 years uh, and had no trouble brushing the uh, Taliban aside after after the Soviets left. Whether they can do it again, I don't know. The the Taliban National Army is now one of the best equipped in the world, given all of our equipment that they've taken over. Uh, but I think looking to help that resistance uh, might be a possibility. My, my focus would be uh, uh, twofold. Number one, just making sure that, uh, that uh, the Taliban keep their commitments, which I don't for a minute think they will. But we need to be prepared to take steps uh, to make sure that neither al-Qaeda nor ISIS nor anybody else really do establish uh, those rear bases, those privileged sanctuaries. We watched that happen in the 1990s when Taliban was in charge before, uh, and we obviously paid a steep uh, price for it. The other, the other thing to watch is on Pakistan. I'm very concerned, as we've just discussed, about their uh, nuclear weapons, and I think we have to be prepared to take preventative action if we see those weapons begin to move in a way that indicates they might be about to go into use, because the risk there is just too extraordinary. What of the President Biden's argument that uh, China and Russia are just thrilled to see America spend trillions of dollars in one place in the world? I once asked uh, the head of policy planning in China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs what their grand strategy was many, many years ago. And he says it was how to keep America distracted in small Middle Eastern countries. I mean, what about the, 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 the possibility that extracting ourselves from Afghanistan actually gives America the wherewithal and capacity to begin responding and doing things more nimbly elsewhere in the world? Do you find any credence in that argument? No, I mean, I think it certainly will stop spending money in Afghanistan, but we were down to a very small amount anyway. And a, a true presence of 
2,500, which is was, was the last notion that uh, we would keep there. But even a true presence in the 10 to 15,000 range uh, is not huge given the overall size of our military capability. Yeah. And as an insurance policy against a terrorist attack, it was important. Look, the Chinese threat requires enormous attention. There's no doubt about it. No, right. Nobody should have any illusions on that score. But surely we can uh, uh, chew gum and walk and say the alphabet at the same time. If America can't handle multiple challenges on multiple fronts, uh, uh, we need to go back to school. What kinds of signals do you think uh, this Afghanistan moment is sending to other allies, Israel, Japan, South Korea, uh, Taiwan? Do, do you think that, that their um, so far restrained communication about fear of America abandoning, abandoning them is something that is more palpable, more possible today than it was yesterday? I think it's uh, it's more possible. I'm I'm less worried about the concerns of allies. I think I think we can remind them of Winston Churchill's uh, famous observation. You know, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing, usually after they've tried everything else. That that's what we're in the process of doing now. Stay calm. What I worry more about uh, is the perception of our adversaries, of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and others. Uh, that they see uh, uh, an aberration in the Trump presidency, which gave them enormous opportunities, has now gone away. But it's been replaced by a president uh, who on Nord Stream 2, on Chinese hacking of our computers, on what's just happened in Afghanistan, has, has portrayed a weak United States. And I think their calculation is, what more do we think we can get from this president? That's the issue Americans need to debate very quickly. We've just been uh, through a couple of impeachments of, of President Trump and uh, uh, Lindsey Graham, whom you know, Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, has said that Joe Biden should be impeached for what is unfolding in Afghanistan. Do you agree with Senator Graham? No, I don't. It's not a high crime or misdemeanor. It's stupidity, but that's that's not an impeachable offense. Uh, and I'd say with respect to the Trump impeachments and this whole conversation about impeachment, the framers did not give us a parliamentary form of government. Governments don't fall uh, uh, at the whim of parliamentary majorities or a lack of popularity. They have four-year terms. We've we've struggled along from 1789 to the president without president uh, to the present time with only one president mm. uh, resigning from office. Uh, we don't need to make this into a tradition. Well, with, we'll leave it there. John Bolton, former U.N. ambassador, former national security advisor, and, and author of the book, uh, In the Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks, Steve, for having me. Glad to be with you. So what's the bottom line? When they look at Afghanistan, some American decision makers see a national security challenge. Some see an opportunity to change the social fabric. Others see a military quagmire that achieves neither stability nor democracy. My guest today sees Afghanistan as going back to its earlier role as a haven of transnational terrorism. But this neocolonial approach to endless occupation of Afghanistan could just as easily lead to that same outcome. In the end, it's the president's job to make the not-so-easy decisions. And I think Joe Biden knew that Americans are really tired of this war. They support the decision to end it despite the incompetence that led to America's friends and Afghan co-workers struggling desperately to get out of Kabul airport. They support the withdrawal even if it comes back to haunt them as a terrorism nightmare. And that's the bottom line.